On this episode of AvTalk, a Pegasus 737 overruns the runway in Istanbul, traffic to China grinds to a halt, Air Italy calls it quits, and a strong jet stream helps a British Airways 747 set a new record. Hello and welcome to episode 77 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with... Jason Rabinowitz and hello Ian, how are you? Hello Jason, I am doing well. How are you sir? I'm, I'm good. Have they let you out of the house recently? I went to the store the other day. Wow. I bought some juice. It was an exciting time. Impressive. Very exciting times. I haven't left the house because it's been such a busy two weeks. Yeah. I, I feel this like I've is, been locked to my desk. This is, I mean, I'm looking at our show notes that we unofficially read off of during the podcast, and it is, I think, the longest non-guest list it has been in a very long time. Yeah. And I said this in the last episode that we could just be done with the year. Now I'm really done with the yeah, year. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, officially things have over. happened. Officially have happened. over. Yeah. Wow. Where, where do we even begin? Do we even need more small talk or should we just dive right into no, it? No, let, let's do it. Let's do it. We, okay. we've, uh, we've warmed up our voices and, and now let, let us begin. It doesn't start with good news. No, it, it doesn't. I mean, nothing in this year has started with good news, but we do have some, some good news later in the show. Yeah, we'll, we'll get there. We got to get so, through the bad and worse. Yeah. So last week, a Pegasus Airlines 737 800 overran the runway landing in Istanbul and initial reports indicated that everyone on board had survived but later on the airline confirmed that there were three fatalities it's still unclear i haven't seen anywhere whether or not that was passenger crew or a combination thereof still waiting for confirmation on that information but all signs kind of point to a weather weather being a factor in this particular instance. A major factor. I, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but there was I believe there was a pretty significant headwind for this flight as they were about to turn the airport around because of that headwind, but this flight tailwind. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry, tailwind, but hadn't quite made the cut. Yes, headwind would be good, but this flight had a significant yeah, that, tailwind. That, that Thank would have you. been fine. Yeah, I mean the METAR at the time was winds uh, 290 at 22 gust 37. So that was roughly a nearly uh, a tailwind. There was a slight crosswind component there, but mostly a tailwind. Thunderstorms and rain, a few clouds at 1,700 feet, broken clouds at 2,500 feet. Not good weather. No. Um, there, and, and quite the tailwind. Yeah, there is no feasible reason that this airplane should have been landing in that direction with such a dramatic tailwind. It's unfortunate that the aircraft was assigned that approach and that the pilots accepted that approach and then landed how far down the touchdown, how far down before the end of the runway? It was almost two thirds of the way down the runway. Yeah. Uh, so it was, it was the first data point that we received with weight on wheels. So they probably shouldn't have been landing on that runway to begin with due to the tailwind. And then they definitely should not have actually continued with their landing at, at touching down two thirds of the way down the runway on a runway which has no practically no safety overrun area. As no, it's not, not practically. There is no there is not. safety area. I mean, um, there's, there is a piece of pavement beyond the the usable surface area but there's no 
there's no safety. Right. There isn't any- There's no EMAS or anything like that. There's no EMAS, which is the aerated collapsible concrete that helps stop aircraft that overrun the runway. Uh, Just basically a cliff, not a sheer cliff, but more of like a a hill that the aircraft just tumbled right down. I, I don't know how- far it was, but it was enough that the aircraft broke into three at the body joint points. So the nose broke off and actually um, rotated what looked like 180 degrees and the tail section started to come apart as well, which is, you know, to be expected, the aircraft tumbled down a hill. But this runway and this airport design has had disaster written all over it. I mean, it, it, it it's not safe. And this flight obviously, unfortunately, proves that with the cost of three lives. Yeah, and, and and this is not the first runway excursion that Pegasus has has had. I mean, it, this is the second in as many months, and the third within, I believe, two years. The first one we discussed it in a previous episode that was in uh, Trabzon with the uh, the aircraft coming to rest again. Down in that instance was a particularly steep embankment where the aircraft had to be then taken up with a crane to be brought back onto oh, the- That's the one that very nearly ended up in the uh, sea, didn't it? Yes, that yeah, exactly. So, not a, a good event in any case. And the third runway excursion for, for this particular airline in, in not very long at all. No. And, and not to come to any conclusions before any initial or, or final reports are out, but this one has poor piloting written all over it, accepting the landing in those conditions and then continuing with the rollout after touching down two-thirds down the runway is just bad piloting. And I don't think anyone could feasibly argue against that. Yeah, I I'm not gonna I'm not gonna argue against it. But I, I will say People that people will. It, yeah, I'm well, and that's fine. But I, I would love to see I, I would love to see the report when it comes out and, and we'll certainly come back to it about any other factors that may have played a role in the accident. But here we sit Looking at uh, the the weather conditions and the position of the aircraft, and, and wondering uh, if this could not uh, have easily been avoided. The last time we recorded, we spoke about a few airlines here and there that were reducing schedules, canceling a few flights. In two weeks, air traffic to, from, and within China has dramatically changed. There are pretty much no flights operated by a U.S. airline between the U.S. and China now, including Hong Kong. I don't. Are there any flights left at this point? I don't think so. I have to dig into a little bit more, but I, I think we're we're pretty much suspended. It was coming up to the twenty first, so we recorded last, and the podcast came out on the thirty first of January. So we recorded, I believe, on the twenty eighth of January, and so. What we did is we looked at data for the past six weeks, and now we have data through the 4th of February, and we'll we'll load the new data. This is Tuesday the 11th, so this will be the, the seventh week we'll look at, and that data will be available on the site by the time the, the podcast comes out, so we'll put it in the show notes, looking at the, the drop in traffic. But traffic was relatively stable up to the 21st of January, and then the 28th of January, there was a, a significant decline in traffic. Obviously, uh, Wuhan almost goes to to near zero, and and the flights that are operating there are, are often evacuation flights by airlines operating for on behalf of other countries. 
Then you get to the 4th of February, and between the 21st of January and the 4th of February, traffic to, from, and within China dropped more than two-thirds. Yeah, it's pretty dramatic, and like you said, a very steep cliff where airlines kind of made announcements where we're going to stop flying sometime in early February, I think the, the 7th or the 10th, and then very quickly, a number of those airlines decided, actually, we're going to do this effective immediately right now. Right. And and it became a, we're going to cancel a few flights, we're going to keep a few flights, we'll change you know our daily flight to a four times weekly, then we'll do it, we'll see how things go. And now we're just, you know, we're suspending service. Right. And keep in mind, most of these airlines are not suspending flights to China due to the virus itself, but because commercial demand to and from China and Hong Kong has fallen off so sharply that there, there's nobody on these flights. So they're not profitable to operate. Right. And and I mean, it, part of it is, is certainly dealing with kind of crew scheduling and operations and, and handling and things like that. But, but the majority you know, of that is driven by the fact that there's just no one to fly those flights. You know, there, there are no passengers there. Right. And there's also a lot of corporations have pretty much barred travel to and from China. So that has withdrawn the commercial demand. I myself was supposed to go to Singapore in the first week of March, but unfortunately, we had to delay that trip due to fears of the coronavirus that may or may not be founded. I don't know, but I don't get to go to Singapore right now. You'll make it there eventually. Eventually. I understand it. It's not an urgent trip, so we don't have to go, but there's an example right there. Yeah, and well, in the Singapore Air Show is is going on right now with a, a reduced exhibitor list. A lot of the, not a lot, a few of the major aerospace companies withdrew and said that we we won't be there for for this particular show. But the show is going on and and seems to be a a fairly successful air show. Yep. One thing I thought that was pretty funny coming out of this, I guess, is a silver lining and everything that one of the Chinese state-run newspapers put out a video of all of the disinfectant procedures in, in cities that were going on coming out of trucks and, and helicopters where you see this great big mist of de- disinfectant. And half the video is uh, a poor Starlux A321neo pushing back, receiving a uh, celebratory water cannon salute for an inaugural flight. So they actually mistook that for being disinfected, which I thought was extremely funny. That one just mystified me on a number of levels. I think the video was reversed because they were giving it a water cannon salute pushing back from the gate. I've never seen that before. Th- that that one's new. That was interesting to me. The second thing that was interesting to me is the logic that would go into spraying an airplane with water. The outside or, or any type of an airplane. Of di- uh, the outside. The whole thing was just so weird. Yeah, and that's why they would include, run propaganda yeah, for you. It was very strange to me. Just the the whole the whole thing there. I just but, felt uh, bad for Starlux. That's they are a brand new airline starting up in a region that is probably the worst possible time ever to start up right now. Poor poor Starlux. Uh, yeah, uh, that's that's true. That that is very true. They'll hopefully be okay. Yep. Speaking of airlines that will hopefully be okay. Admittedly, will not be one of them. No, <laughs> I wanted to see where that was going. 
No, it won't be okay. They're they're done. Air well, they're Italy, not. They're not quite done. They've said they're going the ghost to be of done. Air Italy is operating flights for a few more days. Yeah. So today, and on the eleventh of February today, announced that they will cease operations on the twenty fifth of this month, and that all flights between the eleventh and twenty fifth of this month will be operated by other airlines. So, so basically, they've contracted wet lease operators to operate their flights for the next two weeks. And there's some interesting interesting airlines in there. You've got Wamos, which is your, uh, your standard bearer of uh, wet lease operations. You've got Albastar, which is uh, another Italian carrier. And you have, let's see, what were some of the other ones? Neos, another Italian carrier. And then you have Tearon Jet, Tearon they're a Bulgarian wet lease operator, which which is not in they they're not having good luck with their customers because they were operating flights for Ernest, which declared bankruptcy last month, and now they're operating flight or they were operating and are operating flights for Air Italy, Air Italy, which is declaring bankruptcy now. Yeah, this one for some context here, Air Italy was uh, a 49% stake was bought by Qatar Airways and they were rebranded from Meridiana over to Air Italy. Meridiana itself had been around for a long time, but this was not meant to be. They news only broke like 12 hours ago that there was a possibility of uh, Air Italy being liquidated. And lo and behold, then very next day, um, they had determined that they were going to liquidate as Qatar was still all in, they said. But without the other shareholders also being all in, they didn't throw good money after bad money, basically, and, and threw in the towel. I just don't understand why they would think this would work. This is yet another example of a Middle Eastern airline attempting to prop up a, a European airline, and it just never seems to work. Or not even European airline, but airline in general at this point. Look at look at Jet Airways, Air Berlin, Darwin Airlines, uh, Air Serbia still hanging in there. Air Seychelles. It, it's has it ever worked at this point? No. I mean, nope. Air Seychelles maybe. Uh, they- maybe they just went through restructuring again, and I believe stopped flying their A330 wide body. So not really. Okay. I mean, it, it's bound to work eventually. Sure. And sure. if you are booked on Air Italy between now and the 25th, don't look to their Twitter account for assistance because they pretty much immediately locked that account, which is a bit of a shady move. Yeah. It was very odd to me. Un- unless, of course, they let that person go and and then they're just, they're just not going to have anybody there. Yeah, um, and they're definitely not still. operating all flights with other airlines because the Milan JFK flight didn't operate at all today. So I don't know how much truth there is to what they're saying there. Well, we'll see what happens over the next couple of weeks. But there, there's definitely a a large contingent of of wet lease operators shuttling Air Italy passengers around. Yep, another one bites the dust. Indeed. So we're we're two for two on the Italian airlines not making it through the year. You're next, Alitalia. They're not going anywhere. No, no. I'm very much of the opinion that Alitalia is a a zombie airline and will be around until the end of humanity. You you can't kill it. Nope. You you can't kill it. Shall we discuss some good news? We have some? Finally. Finally some good news. Are you sure? Is this a trap? It's not. It's not a trap. It's not a trick. I promise this is good news. So over the weekend, a British Airways 747 
set a new, and I will be very specific here because I don't want to hear anything about anything. It set a new New York to London subsonic speed record. Hey, look at that. You did better than the BBC. (laughs) That's my only goal in life. Yep. So JFK to Heathrow specifically is an extremely prestigious route. You could look at that alone and there are a bunch of records and all sorts of things on that. Obviously, there's legacy there with the the Concorde. But yes, the Concorde did it really fast. But we also like to see how fast flights can get between New York and London subsonically. Um, I guess you could – well, the last New York to London record was actually Gatwick with Norwegian, wasn't it? Yeah. So it's not specifically Heathrow. It's New York no, to it, London. No, it's London. Yeah. Right. And, well, and, and you know, there's, there's quibbling all around and, and there was certainly some quibbling about this particular record. So we should, I guess, point out that the record is now four hours and 56 minutes. So under five hours with the help of a very, very strong jet stream that was very well placed to kind of bring the river of air across the Atlantic to right into London. Which is pretty crazy, stupid fast. Like on that flight, you were you took off, you were served dinner, and you maybe had an hour of lights off time before breakfast was served and you landed. That that's fantastic. Yeah. Or I terrible. Mean, yeah, it's just and a lot of the comments that, that we saw on, on Twitter and Facebook were, well, I, if you know if I was in business class, I'd be upset. And, um, and yeah. I mean, <laughs> A little, I think. I mean, I I hate the eastbound transatlantic red eyes. They're they're terrible because they're so short. And this one, what were the flights to uh, to Dublin and Reykjavik that night? I mean, the Dublin was. I I didn't look at Reykjavik, but I would assume that it's that was pretty pretty standard, just because where the jet stream was and and Iceland's a, a, kind of above where it was. But but Dublin Dublin was well under five hours. I, I think. I think JFK Dublin was four forty eight one where, and there was a there was a Boston Boston London flight that was in the four thirties. Right, but we don't care about those routes. They don't no. set the records. And, and like Only I said, this JFK is, is, London, yeah, I mean, and I don't want to hear about Newark flights. Very you know, that, that just doesn't count. That yeah, they're a very specific for absolutely no reason whatsoever record that means absolutely nothing beyond no trophy? saying Should we you make did a trophy. It. I certainly toyed with the idea of creating some sort of plaque or trophy. Interesting. Um, I will bring it to Waterside myself. There you go. You are now in charge of that. Good luck, sir. Okay, great. Um, I did book a BA flight today, so that works. There you um, go. Bring, bring it up. Bring, that, now that would be something if you took that flight and the the captain that was the same captain. That'd be cool. See if but we can mean, work that out. Meanwhile, while while BA set that record in a rather old elderly seven four seven four hundred, Virgin Atlantic was right on its tails. With was it a seven eight seven or an A three thirty? It was an A three fifty. An A350, ooh, even yes. more efficient. Yes. Um, there was some discrepancy as Virgin said, hey, wait a minute, we actually did it faster or just as fast. Um, and we did it more efficiently using an A350 rather than an old clunky 747, which is a, actually a pretty neat point that they did it almost as fast with half the number of engines. And I think they said 20 tons less fuel. Yeah, it was about 20, 22, something like that. Yeah. So, I mean, 
not to take away from from anything that that the BA seven four seven did. I would say that the Virgin flight is also impressive, and certainly is impressive for its increased efficiency. It deserves a gold star. It does deserve a gold star. They came in right behind them and and they did a very nice job of almost overtaking the BA flight. Let's be realistic. The difference between the BA flight and the Virgin flight could be determined nothing more than by when the left turn on departure out of JFK was given. Was it given 30 seconds after uh, liftoff or was it given 35 seconds after liftoff? That's literally what could have made or break the difference there. Yeah, I mean or, or when when they got their turn into onto the runway, you know, into the runway onto final for Heathrow. I mean, you know, the, this is why none of this matters. Right. But it's but neat. I'm still going to bring the trophy to BA. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. Okay. As long as we're settled on that. What do you say we take a quick break and we can work on designing and building a trophy for British Airways, and then we'll come back and talk about uh, maybe some folks who aren't getting a trophy. Oh. I know. They get cold. <laughs> we'll be right back. Welcome back. We have a few incidents uh, that thankfully didn't result in any uh, injuries or any serious injuries to crew or passengers, but did result in uh, some unfortunate positioning of aircraft. An Iceland Air 757 landing in Reykjavik in very strong winds. The winds were gusting up to 56 knots at the time. That is very strong. That is very strong, as the winds often are in, in Reykjavik. That one resulted in a right main gear collapse. So that was not good. Whoops. And then a, a UTAIR 737-500 hit a snowbank in Usinsk and tore off its, again, right main gear and folded the left one back into the undercarriage and landed on its belly. So not good, but thankfully no serious injuries in either case. And everyone was able to, uh, to evacuate and, and walk away safely. Yes, Ut Air, Ut Air. I, I never know how to pronounce that one. They had uh, uh, yeah. they had initially claimed that wind shear had contributed to the accident. So um, there's definitely a common thread among all of these 737 NGs having incidents on landing. Um, wind is playing a part in all of it, and it's kind of amazing that we're we're still at this point where, where winds are are causing such incidents. And I guess it's just the the nature of the beast. Yeah, I mean, and obviously the the UTR is or UTR. We'll we'll get confirmation on that. But they, yeah, they initially said it was wind shear. We'll, we'll see whether or not that was the case, and, and hopefully we'll we'll see a report on that one as well. But yeah, weather uh, weather and flying. Who knew? Couple other incidents that have happened that we have new news on. One was the Avianca flight that diverted to Panama City. And this was, let's see, this was, when was this? The date on this one was January 23rd. And what happened was the aircraft was traveling along on its way from uh, San Jose in Costa Rica to Bogota, Colombia. And the airline had initially said that the crew reacted to an alert 
and then diverted the aircraft. Beyond that, some information provided by investigators has now kind of put that with a, you know, confirming what the data was was showing to begin with, a 2,500 foot drop and there was an overspeed incident on the aircraft and then they diverted safely to, to Panama. So still no word on what caused this particular incident and they are certainly investigating it and it'll be interesting to see why it happened. But now that investigators have kind of confirmed what indeed happened. So we recorded a vertical rate of near uh, of over 8,500 feet per minute in that incident where they went from, they were traveling up near 37,000 feet and they went down to 35,725 feet. And this so, was the 777-300-non-ER, correct? No, no, this was an A319. Oh, I'm thinking of some, an Emirates? This was Avianca. Oh, okay. I'm not paying attention. <laughs> Yeah, apparently not. So anyway, we we finally got confirmation that something happened, obviously waiting for the investigative report to find out why it happened. The other thing that happened, Jason, you got ahead of yourself and, and I apologize, I went out of order. So, yeah, so I may confused have, me. Jeez. I, I apologize. The final report on the Emirates Flight 521 failed go around in Dubai came out last week. And the report is a very fascinating read if you're into reading reports, as I'm sure a lot of our listeners actually are. That sounds like the key demographic. Yeah. The report is very interesting because it talks about a few things. When these reports come out, we've talked about this, I don't know how many times, but it's never just a single thing that happens. So what happened in this incident was the 777- was landing in Dubai and the captain perceived a uh, a thermal updraft in sort of a the, he wasn't confident that they could land safely so they attempted a go around what they didn't act upon was that the aircraft had actually touched down and so the the 777 has a logic in it that prevents the aircraft from increasing thrust by just pressing the the toga button after the aircraft has touched down to inadvertently prevent power up and a runway excursion on landing you have to advance the you have to advance the throttle manually and they didn't do that so they tried to to lift off again to accomplish the go around but they started to climb at idle thrust and then fell back onto the runway where there was an impact, a slide, and then a significant fire. And so a few things came out of the report, and and one of them was recommendations for training regarding go-arounds and things like that, and and kind of a non-standard go-around training procedures and after the aircraft had already touched down. But then they discussed the, the firefighting that took place after the, the aircraft had, had come to a stop. And Unfortunately, a firefighter in Dubai was killed because the right main fuel tank exploded while they were while they were trying to put the fire out. And the report goes into significant detail about where the firefighters were positioned relative to the aircraft, relative to the parts of the aircraft that were on fire, and really gives a, a lot of detail about how things went wrong. And in reading these reports, it's always it's always fascinating to me about how they're never 
you know, and, and we talked about this a, a bunch too. They're they're not designed to to lay blame. They're not designed to to say this person was at fault. They're designed to say these things went wrong. How can we fix them? And then of course there's the the laundry list of recommendation safety recommendations to to enact. And, and a lot of those focused on, you know, firefighting and, and rescue procedures. So we'll put a, a link to the report in the show notes, but uh, a, a very interesting read. Yeah, I wonder what page of the triple seven manual they get to the detail that the the toga button doesn't work if you've already touched down is on. That seems like a very minor detail. Yeah, so I mean, and it goes on to talk about you know the training for for the Emirates crew, but also how to make that more clear to to all crews. I, I'd have to wonder if you press the toga button after you've already touched down and it does not operate in that mode. Is there any sort of alert or audio alert that that it's not going to do anything? If it doesn't, that seems like a design issue to me. But I don't think we have those sorts of details, unfortunately. I would have to go back to the report to see what they've mentioned because they do they do mention some of the indicators, but I'm not sure what what those are. Yeah, or what I, the I would pilots are supposed to be button. looking for. Yeah, I'd expect if you push a button of that importance and it doesn't do what you think it's going to do, the aircraft should probably yell out very loudly, this button doesn't work that way because it's kind of important to know that. <laughs> that same that same call out, the, the 50, 40, 30, 20, way, this button doesn't work that way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, something a little more than a, a very small indicator on a, one of the many screens would probably be In, good. Entirely possible. Yeah. Speaking of indicators- it's Uh-oh. that time again. Do we have a jingle yet? <laughs> oh man. Oh, say no, it. No, I don't want to say it. You say, say it. it. You say it. Oh, uh, fine. Well, it's time for the bi-weekly Boeing bungle, and I don't take pleasure in saying that because I just want this to be over. Right. Right. But it's, we have to have um, a segment name. So. Yeah. Well, okay. So what happened this week? Well, I'll read the quote that we have. In the show notes here, during flight testing of the 737 MAX's updated software, an indicator light associated with the stabilizer trim system illuminated in the flight deck. Boeing says on February 6th, we determined that the illumination of this light was caused by differences in input data between the flight control computers. Somehow this will not affect the very vague timeline for the MAX's return to commercial service, but I Guess that's good that they identified the issue and it's not going to be something that impacts the timeline. But at this point, I really feel like that if you just keep digging and digging and digging through the code and software, you're going to keep finding issues. So I don't even know what to make of this at this point. Yeah. I mean, so the issue cropped up because of a change made to the software that now takes information from both flight control computers. So th- this is a, a part of the fix to prevent MCAS activation based on erroneous data. And so the, the illumination of the light, it stayed on too long is basically what they're, what they're saying. Uh, so th- they're fixing that. But they say it's not going to take much time because they've built in this time. Uh, it, it seems time to fix things that they find rather than saying, oh, it's going to be back in the air tomorrow. And then finding something else and having to go back and say, oh, it might not be tomorrow. It might be next week. So that's it this time around. So pretty short bi-weekly yeah. Boeing bungle segment. 
thankfully. Uh, yeah. I, I like that these are getting shorter and, and less seemingly serious, I guess. Yeah. And the the 777X is still doing flight testing. So yep. that's good. It's It's been quite busy. Good. That's uh, good. The 737 MAX test aircraft, the uh, N7201 Sierra, is doing all sorts of cross-country travels now. Uh, so they're starting to bring it to various airports to put it through specific testing requirements rather than just general testing. Um, so they're looking for different weather, different runway configurations and things like that to be able to put it through specific tests before they do the final uh, certification test. That's something to to keep an eye on. In the midst of all that, there are some airlines that are looking to pair back their MAX orders. I guess Air Italy paired back their 737 MAX order by default. Well, technically those were Qatar's orders, so I'm not sure if that's true. Oh, the old technicality. Yeah. I mean, Air Italy is like a virtual airline even. Um, All the aircraft that they had, the newer aircraft, the 737 MAXs, the A330s, um, and what was supposed to eventually be the 787s, they were all from Qatar. So I don't think those aircraft are actually going to be canceled. They will probably end up at Qatar or Qatar will place them elsewhere. Our resident number guy, Gavin, actually had the idea that potentially they might end up at South African Airways via Qatar's stake in IAG and their stake in Comair down in South Africa. And maybe they could operate for Comair via South African Airways because they need aircraft. So who knows? I will never claim to understand the aircraft finance and leasing and placement. It, it, it's just, it's kind of like the that one gift where the guy is just kind of staring at all of the numbers. That it is beyond me as much as I try. No, but I'm, that I'm, like would be the, something. I'm like the gif of the dog that runs the numbers through his head to make the stick go through the narrow passageway. Like, it's just not going to work. <laughs> it's just not going to work. The other airline is Icelandair is considering an Airbus order for – they're still going to take their, their 737 MAX, but they're considering what's after that. Yeah. Well, it's – Icelandair is one of the airlines that's particularly impacted by this as I believe this coming summer season, 20-something, I think 27% of its capacity was supposed to be on the MAX. And of course, that's going to be 0%. So, it's had to – lease a few 7.5s and 7.3s, extend the lifespan of 7.5s existing in its fleet. Well, minus one now, I guess that the aircraft that lost its landing gear is probably going to be out of service for a little while. But that's we're, we're definitely getting to the point where, Iceland, where airlines are losing faith in, in Airbus, uh, sorry, Boeing, simply because they, they need airplanes. Yeah. I mean, I don't even know if it's a faith thing. I think it's a, we can't wait around forever. We have to order something. But it's not as if Airbus can turn around and deliver Iceland Air 321neo in, in six months. They get to the back of the line and it's sure, a couple sure. years. I, right. But what I'm saying is I, I don't know. You have to order something to get in line. There's such a lead time that you had to order years ago if you wanted them tomorrow. Right. And, and clearly the – the Max is not working for Iceland Air, and, and Boeing simply does not have another product to offer in this space. So over to Airbus it is. How about uh, some Qatar 787s? Ah, that might work. Now I'm using the old noodle. Yeah. Wait, no, that's a terrible idea. 
<laughs> For so many reasons. So you had an issue today. I did? Oh, oh yeah. That is not that is not unheard of elsewhere. I would like you to tell me right now, do you need a sippy cup? I might, because for the third time in a couple of weeks, I have spilled liquid all over my desk at work, all in the keyboard, the mouse, my headphones, everywhere, which is a good thing that I do not have two jet engines attached to my computer like some A350s might. So EASA put out an emergency airworthiness directive. I'm not sure what the directive states, but basically <laughs> there have been several incidents where specifically Delta and Asiana have uh, pilots have accidentally spilled liquids inside the center console. Um, I don't know if it's coffee or water or whatever, but there's apparently in French design, there are no American sized cup holders on the flight deck. So I don't know if the drinks were spilled in, in the handoff between the flight attendants or one pilot to another, but drinks have been spilled into the center console, and it turns out there are important sensitive electronics there. It led to um, a couple engine rollbacks and shutdowns in flight, which is not good. Uh, the Delta and Asiana flights had to divert and land. Um, I believe both were in Alaska somewhere. No, uh, Delta went to Fairbanks and uh, Asiana went to Manila. Ah, okay. Uh, so I was way off there. But IASA stated that it could actually lead to a double engine rollback and, and failure. Um, with the Delta flight, at least, they were not able to relight the engine that had um, rolled back due to something as silly as a drink being spilled on the center console. And it would be a real shame if a perfectly functional A350 were to be lost because a drink was spilled on a switch. And it's kind of nerve-wracking or, or, or just – maybe that's not the right word, but like baffling that my my iPhone – is IP68 rated waterproof. I can drop it in the ocean and it will be fine up to, I think, like four meters or something. But spilling a drink on a many, many millions dollars airplane and uh, you'll accidentally shut the engines off. Yeah, not good. No, Airbus should probably waterproof those things. That could be an option for sure. Yeah, I, I don't know why it's yeah, not like one an of those. Option. You remember those old keyboard covers Ooh, when, when they had yeah. the old mechanical keyboards and they were just kind of like those. Get one of those. Yeah. I mean, it's not an uncommon thing. I mean, drinks and meals are, are always shuttled in and out of the flight deck. Obviously, these are long flights. The crew needs to eat. Um, and all that stuff is being handed off right over the center console, which is where a lot of sensitive equipment is. That stuff should probably be waterproofed, huh? Now that we're talking about this, that doesn't seem like a bad idea. So no. the, the airworthiness directive basically draws operators' attention to a directive that Airbus sent out to, to A350 operations said, you guys have to follow this one. And it says that there has to be a liquid-free zone within the A350 flight deck. One assumes that that liquid-free zone is around the center console. So no more drinking while hovering over the center console. I guess. Yeah, probably not a bad idea. Yeah, very, very good idea, in fact. Yeah, I think it, to it kind of startling though that Yasa very clearly said, yeah, this could lead to a double engine rollback failure with no relight option it is stunning. Yep. And, and thankfully that both of those flights landed safely and 
nothing beyond a lesson learned happened. Uh, so, so that that's a good way to a good Just way to a end lot it, of paperwork. Right oh, I can yeah. I don't even want to imagine the the paperwork involved. You know that scene from Top Gun where like the 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 head head guy, the admiral, I don't know, is yelling at Tom Cruise because he did the flyby of the tower. I can kind of imagine the chief pilot at these airlines chewing out the pilots like that in this scenario. I could, yeah, I can see that. Yeah. Does that happen? I hope not. I I mean, I one assumes that there is a fair amount of possible yelling mm, or stirring talking out has to. Happened. Yes. For certain. Where should we go next? Should we talk about United's recent purchase? Oh, okay. We're skipping down again. Yes. Yeah, I'm, I'm jumping around. I'm, I'm feeling- I thought we were uh, going to go to space. That would have been a good segue. Do we want to go to space? Mm, I don't know anything about what the space jet is doing, so no. Okay. <laughs> we'll come back to that in a future episode, hopefully. Um, so, what did United do? Oh, you're throwing to me. Um, it Why not? bought the Westwind School of Aeronautics to become the United Aviate Academy, which is pretty darn cool that United bought its own flight academy. Um, I think a couple other – did JetBlue do the same? Refresh my memory. I, I don't know if they bought one or, or started or, or kind of – Or like very closely affiliated with another right. one. But basically, United wants to make sure it has a – a constant supply of new pilots coming into the system. I don't know much about this, but I feel like are they still going to run these these new pilots from the United Aviate Academy through the regionals that will then move over to United or will they go straight to United Mainline? I don't know specifically what they'll be doing with the graduates of the academy other than bringing them into the airline and how they'll specifically get there. But one of the big things that they they noted was that this was a way to to deal with the, you know, the pilot shortage, but it's also a way to diversify the pilots that fly for United, the makeup of the the demographics of the pilots as a way to encourage people of color and women to to become pilots. So certainly something that is a good goal to have and one that I think United feels best suited to do when they have control over over the training. Uh, so it's it, certainly an interesting move and, and I wonder if we'll see more, more of this from other airlines. Yeah. And I just looked it up. It's actually um, the facilities in, in Phoenix, which is not where I would have figured it to be because Phoenix is not a major city for United. It's not a hub. It's not a focus city. It's just a city. Yeah. I mean, Phoenix and, and kind of that area of the country is certainly a very good area to train pilots. The weather's always the same. And it's, it's hot. you know a, a good. Well, it's hot, yeah. But it's it's a good way to. I mean, you know, to have consistency and things like that. And I know there's a couple other. Lufthansa has their training academy, Emirates as well. I believe near Phoenix. Uh, I don't know if it's in Phoenix specifically, but it's always interesting to see Lufthansa liveried SR twenty twos or something like that around in Arizona. But hopefully, I mean, we've been talking about a pilot shortage. We've been arguing about, is there in fact a pilot shortage? United says, we need more pilots and this is what we're doing about it. It's not a pilot shortage, it's a pilot pay shortage. Aha. I was trying Weird. to dance around that. Yeah, I just went straight through it. <laughs> if you don't pay people to do jobs, they're not going to do them. 
that's a fair assessment, I think. Yeah. So speaking of uh, Lufthansa, aha, there's my segue. Ah, well done. It, an interesting thing happened. So, so Lufthansa flight uh, seventeen thirty on the tenth of February flew from Frankfurt to to Krakow, Krakow via Sweden. What? Yeah, exactly. That's what we said because a bunch of people wrote in on the the media's social and were very confused about what had happened and why. And As so, am I. Tell me more. Yeah, gave gave Lufthansa a call, and they said, "Here's what happened." So the storm that has moved through Western Europe that that slammed the UK, that has delayed flights, canceled flights all over, caused some issues for Lufthansa in Frankfurt. So what they had was an A320 that was fueled and ready to go somewhere but at the last moment or or near the last moment they decided to send it to to Krakow and it had already been fueled and the wind was such that they didn't feel it was safe to defuel it they didn't want people climbing up onto whatever apparatus they used to to remove fuel from the plane at the gate and so they decided instead of defueling it or, or canceling the flight or, or or doing something else they would fly from Frankfurt basically up to Malmo and then down to Krakow. They did that, added about 40 minutes of flying time to get the flight under its uh, maximum fuel weight so that they could land under maximum fuel weight in in Krakow. So uh, one of those uh, kind of everything comes together to make everyone go, huh? Huh? Well, that's pretty cool. Yeah. So they, you know, and and the whole idea was this is a, a safety first thing because they fueled the flight in order to make the airplane safe to load, which was something that I'm looking into more because this is an interesting thing to me. But the winds were such that they've been adding fuel to aircraft to make them heavier so they don't do something in the wind. I mean, that, that's a thing on the ground that if the wind is strong enough, a lightly loaded plane can absolutely be knocked around on the ground. And you definitely wouldn't want that in the boarding process. Yeah. So so that that's part of the reason that there was kind of extra fuel on board to add weight to, to keep the aircraft from, from moving around. But they had also planned to send it elsewhere. And because of the high winds in much of Western Europe – They've been adding extra fuel in case of holding and returns and diversions and things like that. So it kind of all came together to make for a very wishbone-shaped flight plan. So you did something that was rather av-geeky and thoroughly enjoyable over the weekend because of all these storms. You'll have to be more specific than that. Uh, <laughs> you you had a busy weekend. No, you you were you were talking about uh, about yes, our yes, friends yes, at uh, Big Jet so, TV. Uh, yeah, the storm at in the UK, specifically at Heathrow, led to flight operations being quite not great. Lots of flights were canceled. There were tons of operational issues. Lots of go arounds. Lots of holding diversions. And a site that I had not actually heard of, which is shame on me, but. Uh, Big Jet TV is basically a site that, or a YouTube page that streams plane spotting, more or less. And this guy 
quite an exuberant fellow, get uh, some very good narration set up at outside of Heathrow in one of the um, prime plane spotting locations. Uh, if you're familiar, it's that spot uh, near the horses. You'll, you'll know what I'm talking about. It stood out there in the, the 50 knot gusting winds and the pouring rain and just live streamed all of the, the flights coming in. And a lot of them made it no issues, specifically the A380s looked like there was no wind, but a lot of flights went around at the at very low altitudes, and it was really interesting to watch. And I sat there for about two hours and watched that. But one specifically was a BA triple seven two hundred, which actually performed a, a touch and go. It, it was on the runway for quite a little bit, and the spoilers didn't deploy because of reasons that uh, Miami Rick on Twitter has explained. Um, basically, the spoilers didn't deployed to slow down the aircraft because some specific criteria were not met. I think it was that the uh, main gear tilt was not such that um, the spoilers were able to deploy and they they went around after already being on the ground, which is called a touch and go, I guess, in this situation. It was really, really cool to see that happen live because that does not happen often. Their channel on YouTube is um, one that is often interesting because they're out there a lot and, and they catch a lot of good stuff. But the, the narration was particularly- The narration uh, in, makes it. I, it was particularly I would, enthusiastic. I would not have watched it for two hours had it not been for the exciting narration. And I think they're actually in Chicago right now streaming, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Um, why aren't you out there? Again, with the leaving the house thing. Oh, right. You don't, you don't leave the house. Oh, but yeah, also, we're was, recording a podcast at the moment. Oh, right, right, right. I, I actually um, subscribed, I think it was like the, the lowest plan, the economy plan for $1.50 a month because it was just so entertaining to watch with the, the narration and look at the, uh, the ADSB uh, on Flight Radar to see what was coming in. And there was an Iran Air A300, I think it was, or A310. It was, it was fun. Yeah. I I always enjoy uh, watching those things, especially after the fact, the kind of compilations that get put together with some of the some of the best ones. Shall we close the show with an apology on behalf of uh, Flight Radar Twenty Four? What um, did you do? And and some very interesting things and a confluence of events that led to just an, an all around not good situation. So last week, a drone was spotted at Madrid, or a drone was claimed to have been spotted. And so Spanish media and some international media had turned its attention to Madrid's airports. And one of the first flights to depart after operations resumed was Air Canada 837, a 767-300. And that particular aircraft experienced an engine issue or experienced a, a gear issue, which then led to an engine issue and had to circle for quite some time because it, that particular 767 doesn't have the capacity to, to dump fuel. They had to burn it. And so they were in the air for, for quite some time. And that led to a very large collection of people watching this particular flight because attention had already been turned to Madrid. So nearly 600,000 people viewed this flight on the site, uh, on the site and, and across the apps. It's, that sounds like a lot. It's a lot for a flight that isn't, uh, I mean, it's a lot, 
but it, it's a lot for a flight there where it's nothing was really out of the ordinary, so to speak. I mean, something had happened, but the plane was flying fine and it was going to return to Madrid and it was going to land and that would be that. But normally what happens is is when we have those big spikes in traffic where there's a lot of people looking at the flight, it's usually a much longer flight where not everyone's looking at the same time. Like for, for instance, when Boeing did their, they drew a 787 with a 787, that took place over like 18 hours. So, you know, millions of people saw it, but it took place over 18 hours. This was over just a few hours. And so at about time, 120,000 people got to watching it at the same time. The, the site bottlenecked and said no more. Whoops. So obviously not happy about that, but it is something that we're taking very, very seriously. And the team worked very hard to get the site back up as quickly as possible when it when it did happen. And now they're working very, very hard to understand exactly everything that happened and, and make sure that it does, does not happen again. Needless to say, the aircraft landed safely. We saw some pictures of a, of a busted tire and a chewed up engine and they'll repair it and ship it back to, uh, to Canada. So uh, a happy ending on, on that note. But unfortunate, nonetheless. Don't. I hope we don't have to start the bi-weekly flight radar twenty-four bungle. Don't. Don't say things like that. Oh. Don't say things like that. On that note. No, we are not ending on that note. Okay, fine. So hopefully the next episode is much less full of things that happen. Things that happened badly. Yes, all good things. Airlines giving away free tickets and fast flights. Virgin retaking their their crown. Actually, it wasn't their crown to begin with, but maybe they can do it again. I don't know. All good things. Who knows? This has been quite the couple weeks, so uh, we'll, we'll see what happens in the in the intervening weeks, and we will be back here to to discuss it. I am sure. This has been episode seventy seven of Talk. Yeah, it has. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with Jason Rabinowitz and thank you for listening. <laughs>